So let us pray. Oh, gracious God, we thank you that we can gather here to worship, and we do pray that um, whatever the interference is going on with our audio for our live stream, that that would um, be fixed, that you would cause that to work, and that those who are um, watching alongside us from their homes, since they can't be here, can hear the audio and participate and be blessed by you, Lord. We thank you that we can gather here to worship you, and we praise you for your glorious works and the ways that you have accomplished your salvation for the world that you have brought unto us through Christ, in whom we pray. Amen. The weary world rejoices. That's the line. The weary world rejoices. Why is this? What event could make a world a world full of sin and struggle, full of sickness and death, rejoice. As we've been hearing in our readings tonight, each of those readings point us to the one thing that can make a weary world rejoice. And Titus sums it up well. It is the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appearing. The grace of God has appeared in a substantial and physical way. Think about that. The mercy of God appeared for all to behold. The love of God was and is in that small, small child born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. God's kindness took on physical form such that a few verses later in Luke, Simeon will cry out, My eyes have seen your salvation. He doesn't say, my eyes have seen the one who will work salvation, but my eyes have seen your salvation as he gazes upon that child Jesus. The weary world rejoices at hearing that Christ is born. But notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say the weary, the weary world rejoices and quits being weary. It's the very weariness that the world senses that actually enables it to rejoice because it sees an end to weariness coming. It sees the salvation that is Jesus himself coming. And it can rejoice despite being weary. It can rejoice despite being broken down and driven down to the ground by the sin that infests all aspects of creation right now. Jesus himself is the salvation of all things. His coming in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity being incarnate, is Yahweh's salvation. For in Jesus, humanity finds its perfection, and that perfection is poured out through his death, resurrection, and ascension. It's a glorious, glorious moment for all of creation to behold. Christ born in Bethlehem. How does God the Father do this? How does he bring salvation into this world? He brings it through many ordinary means after a most extraordinary event. You see, he picks the ordinary to work through. He doesn't pick famous kings and princes to bring into this world, to come and be the father and the mother of the Son of God. Instead, he picks a young woman and man from the backwaters of the Judean province the backwaters of Galilee, a little town called Nazareth. 
a town that probably barely had 450 individuals living in it, smaller than the hometown that I grew up in. And my hometown only had about 550. God chose something so backwater, so ordinary, so insignificant to accomplish an extraordinary thing. All of these things begin in our readings at the Annunciation to Mary when Gabriel appears to her and reveals to her that she is going to be the mother of the Savior of the world. That in that moment, the Holy Spirit and the power of the Most High would overshadow her and cause her to conceive Jesus. And that is the moment that God became incarnate in the womb of the Virgin. That is the extraordinary event that sparks off all the ordinariness that occurs now. Because after all, what does Mary go and do? She goes and visits her relative Elizabeth, having heard that she was expecting a child and that that was a sign that these events were going to come true that Gabriel told her about. And so she goes and visits Elizabeth and hears all about her pregnancy. And John, in her womb, leaps for joy at just the very presence of the now incarnate God, Jesus. He leaps for joy at the embryo that is sitting inside of Mary's womb, growing ever so slowly for these next nine months after that announcement from Gabriel. For there God has incarnated himself into this world in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And for nine months, things are ordinarily going forward for them. Not that it's easy, not that it wasn't hard, not that there's not weariness, but things progress forward simply and in the ordinary working of how God has created the world to work. It's an ordinary means that God's salvation comes to us. It's through the mundane things that God's salvation now appears in this world. Plain old ordinary movements that become extraordinarily interconnected to bring about the birth of the Savior, to bring about the message of salvation. And as we enter into Luke chapter 2, we hear first of an ordinary event that is simply a political event that becomes the catalyst for fulfilling prophecy. Luke doesn't mention the prophecy from Micah 5.2, but in Micah 5.2 it says that Bethlehem Ephratah is insignificant amongst all the other tribes, of all the other cities, of all the people of Judea and of Israel. But from there shall come the Messiah, one who is eternal, one who has walked from ancient days. And here God takes an ordinary political event like the census that Augustus wanted. And he begins fulfilling his prophecy because in that event of that census, the world is to be registered. And in that registration, residents are asked to go to the town of their family's origin. We don't know how that was going to work out, but for Joseph, it meant going from Galilee down to Bethlehem to leave the town that he had grown up in, Nazareth, and go down to the city of David, Bethlehem. And in the process of going down, he takes his betrothed with him, the woman who is, on one hand, considered his wife, but yet they have not consummated their marriage. They are but betrothed still. The expectation of them to continue on together. But she is heavy with child at this point. It's been nine months since the announcement. And they travel 90 miles through rocky surfaces, through dangerous places, traveling from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. An ordinary political event putting into process 
the fulfilling of prophecy. For the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah was to be born there because the Messiah is David's son, who is yet David's Lord at the same time. And they arrived there, and the time came for her to give birth. And that is the second event. And that's the ordinary birth of a child who is extraordinary and stands apart from all other children. The ordinary birth of a child who is extraordinary. We all like to think of our own children being extraordinary compared to all the other children around us. But Jesus is absolutely extraordinary. He is different, for he is both God and man. He is fully God, the divine son, taking on human flesh, becoming a man, becoming a child, becoming a baby, being carried in the womb of Mary for nine months. And he goes through birth, an ordinary event that brings forth the child who will save the world. And ordinary things happen. She gives birth to her firstborn son and she wraps him in swaddling cloths and she lays him in the only place where he can be placed to rest besides her arms. A simple manger there in the stable because there was no place for them in the inn. They were not staying in the main locations of a house. You see, back in those days when people traveled from town to town, one of the things that they would do when they got to the town they were going to was to look up relatives usually. And those relatives were expected to welcome their family members into their home no matter what time they showed up. And here with this census that has been required, Bethlehem has become flooded with residents and individuals who are coming there. And is filled with people and so they probably went to a relative's house and there was no room inside the main house for them. And so they had to stay in the lower level where the animals were kept. More than likely, that is what the picture is of right now. An ordinary house with an ordinary stable as the bottom floor where the animals would stay during the night to keep them from running away. And so Joseph and Mary are given that little spot to stay. And there she gives birth to the son of the God, to the son of the Most High. And she sets him in a feeding trough to sleep, to rest. And then there is another e event that is so ordinary that it's merely the proclamation of the word, though it is done in an extraordinary way. The third event we see is the ordinary proclamation of God's word, of what is happening, of the salvation that is occurring. And we see that come to the shepherds in the field. It comes through an angel who appears before them, which is pretty extraordinary, pretty amazing. But what does he do? He doesn't scare them into doing what God desires them to do. Instead, the angel simply tells them the good news. He proclaims the gospel to them, demonstrating to us the power of the gospel. For he says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. He proclaims to them that the Savior, the Messiah, the one who is the descendant of David who is to reign over all things, the anointed one of God, has been born. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. There probably aren't many babies that ever get put in mangers to sleep and to rest. 
And so that's the sign that the shepherds are given. And so they go and they see this child. They go and appear and Mary treasures up the things that they say, the things that they do. And as soon as they go and worship the Lord and they see Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, they know that everything the angel has said is true, that here is the Savior. Here is the Messiah of Israel, the anointed one that they have been waiting on, that they have been waiting for all their lives. And it's a beautiful picture because the line of David begins with a mere little shepherd boy named David. A shepherd boy who becomes king, who as a young man is anointed by Samuel and prepared to become the king of Israel, who after becoming the king of Israel is given the promise that his line will go on forever and that there will be one who will reign over all creation forever and ever. And who are the first people outside of Mary and Joseph to meet Jesus? Shepherds. Shepherds come to see the baby who is the great and good shepherd. The one who is their king, the one who will guide them deeper and deeper into salvation. And upon seeing these shepherds, Mary ponders and treasures all these things up in her heart. And what do the shepherds go out and do being so changed? They go out and begin proclaiming what they've heard. They go out and proclaim the word of God. They proclaim the gospel. They tell of all the things that have just happened to them. They say, an angel has appeared and told us of this child who will be born and that he would be in a manger. And we went and found the child. And we know that he is the Messiah for that is what the angel said. They go out and do the ordinary work of telling people about Jesus of sharing the gospel, of sharing what they have experienced and seen, knowing that it is from the angels, that it is from God himself, for he sent these angels to proclaim the goodness and the mercy of God. You see, all of these ordinary events are extraordinarily connected to make God's salvation known, to make Jesus himself known to the world. God takes ordinary events and makes his salvation known. He connects them all together. It's like dominoes falling. They look so normal, but they've been set up to do that. And that is what the Father has done. He has promised His salvation to come to the people. And He accomplishes that salvation. For Jesus Himself is the grace of God incarnate. The favor of God placed upon this earth to take our sins upon Himself. And in all of this week that I've been working on this and thinking about this and praying over this and studying this, something came about that I'd never thought about before. Think all the way back to the creation, to the garden, to Adam and Eve. Who did they walk with in that garden in the cool of the evenings but God himself? God made man in his image that man might know God. But I think there's something else. As we look through the Old Testament, we see continual theophanies of God coming down and being with his people, of manifesting himself in seemingly physical forms. That he comes down to be with his people, that he is made in his image. There's almost a sense in which God made man in his own image, that he might come down in man's image to redeem us, to redeem mankind itself. We are made in God's image, and then God comes and takes on our image in Jesus. He takes on human flesh in order 
to walk amongst us in order that he could then accomplish salvation. For whatever God has not taken on in Jesus as a man, he does not save. And so therefore, Jesus has taken on all that it means to be a human. He has endured temptation and yet was without sin. He has experienced human life for our sake, to be our representative, to be our substitute. But it all begins with his incarnation. J.I. Packer says, The supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us does not lie in the Good News Friday message of the atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection. The really staggering claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was truly and fully human as he was divine. And that therefore God himself has become incarnate. God himself has come down and rested in a manger. And unfortunately my quote from Packer was a little broken there because I left out a line. I just realized that. But ultimately the line that I forgot was the one that said that the supreme mystery that we're confronted with is the incarnation. That is where God begins fully accomplishing our salvation. Without incarnation, Jesus could not suffer the cross on the cross and die for our sins. That Jesus is both fully divine and fully human. Without him being both, there is no salvation for us. For it is through God incarnating himself as Jesus that we can see salvation before our very eyes. And that salvation is accomplished through the cross itself and through resurrection and through ascension. Take a moment and look at our banners. Our banners are of the shepherds looking toward Jesus and Joseph and Mary looking down at Jesus, their salvation. And what stands between them? The cross itself. The cross that is the picture of how Jesus brings about forgiveness of sin stands in the middle. Not by accident, but on purpose. That is through the cross that those shepherds are saved. For it is through the cross that Mary and Joseph are saved. For it is through that very cross that we ourselves are saved. For through that cross, Jesus dies and takes on the sins of the world and puts to death, death itself. He dies the greatest death in all of creation in order that he would be raised back to life, that death would no longer have power over all those who trust in him over all those who come and hear his salvation are drawn up to himself. We're saved from all of those sins that have separated us from God. We are all saved from those sins that so sorely hinder us from the race set before us. We're saved from those sins that would stand between us and God the Father. Saved for Jesus going to the cross and going to that tree of death. Jesus goes to the tree of death to die on our behalf in order that he might pour out salvation to us. And it all starts in a manger. It all starts in his birth. It all starts in his in incarnation. And that child in the manger will become the man upon the cross. He goes from the manger through life to the cross where he dies from life to death and yet from death back to life forevermore 
It is this Jesus that gives to us that which was first his as God the Father's Son. He has life forevermore. He has eternal life because he is God the Father's Son. And he pours that upon us that we might now know that redemption and know eternal life through Jesus, through the work that he has accomplished. That manger leads us to the cross, for this is the way. This is the way of salvation. But that cross does not remain a tree of death. Charles Erlandson points out the tree of death, the cross, becomes the tree of life and the instrument of salvation. Isn't it amazing how God works that that thing which causes Jesus to die becomes that very thing that brings life and salvation to all who trust in him, to all who hear that promise and say God is a truth teller. God tells the truth. The tree of death becomes the tree of life. It becomes the instrument of our salvation. By Jesus' death, that which is dead comes to life and bears fruit for the sake of Jesus. He becomes the life of the world. He becomes our salvation by being incarnate for us. For in Jesus, the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior has appeared. And God our Savior has saved us not because of our works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Jesus is the manifestation of God's favor and his loving kindness towards us. So as we go out now, rejoice, O weary world, for Christ our Savior is born. For God the Son has taken on human flesh that he might be the salvation of all. And that is where our faith meets Jesus. When we hear that message of salvation and we say God has accomplished all that is necessary for us. Our salvation rests in Jesus, and I rest in Jesus. And through Jesus, that which is dead comes to life and bears fruit. And though I was dead, I come to life in Jesus, and I will go out and bear fruit for the sake of Jesus now, because he has renewed me, because he became incarnate, that he might die for me and be raised back to life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen.